Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Jameson. Dr. Jameson is the Associate Director of the International Center for Regulatory Science and an Assistant Professor in Clinical Pharmacy in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Southern California. Dr. Jameson, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks very much for having me. So I know you've done some in-depth studies on the role of regulation and commercialization of medical products. Perhaps you can give us an introduction to your findings. I was in the industry side for almost 30 years and over that period of time I had a lot of opportunities to work with university researchers. I'm looking at joint industry research, industry academia research projects and I always found that whole process very, very frustrating. And uh, the same with my colleagues in industry is that we saw great opportunities to work with academia but you know things like tech transfer, contracts and grants, uh, just the overall bureaucracy of the university made it very, very difficult for us to get to work directly with the actual researcher. And I got to know a lot of the researchers also at the same time, and I could see frustration from their side. So I decided that at the end of my career, uh, maybe in a, a naive way, is that I think the system has to change. I think there's a great deal of wonderful research that's collecting dust in university labs because of the system that's there right now. So I, I came to academia full-time with the idea of actually trying to see if there was some way we could change that model. So the research project we did was actually a survey of industry of, of 70 different companies, and these were all senior business development type people. And overall, what we tried to do is try and find out what they liked and disliked about working with universities on joint research projects. So it covered everything from looking at things like tech transfer to looking at the good and bad of working with an academic researcher. And what we found really was basically that about 86% of the respondents thought that the system, the existing model, didn't work and that we need to fix it. And they sort of concentrated and looked at specific areas, things like the tech transfer systems, contracts and grants, uh, lack of accountability, uh, lack of quality systems. So again, what we're talking about, uh, the lack of data reproducibility. So those were all the types of areas that they centered out as being areas that needed to be changed. So. I think what the research sort of supported what I had thought all along, and that is that both sides really see an opportunity to work with each other. The system just has to be changed. So there's a, what I call a classical model in terms of the research pipeline that goes from very fundamental studies to application engineering and, of course, commercialization. I think in terms of many people's perspectives, the classical model says the university works on one end of the spectrum and the companies work on the other end. I gather from what you are saying, that may not be the right way. Well, and I think it's changed. I think it's shifted a lot, John. I think that people that are from researchers that for, are from yours and my era, they went into academia with the idea that that's exactly why they went to academia, was the fact that they really didn't want to be burdened by all of the regulations. But the newer generation of researchers definitely are more interested in having their products commercialized. So I think there's a mix of both, John, and I think that's part of why we have such a problem at universities right now, is that we have sort of the, the senior tenured professors who have been around for 30, 40 years, who still envision university as not having a role in commercialization. But I think also the universities themselves 
are looking at more funding opportunities because as NIH grants start to dry up, that model looks different. So I think that, yes, it's changing, and I think it's something that the newer generation is more interested in than the older generation. But I think for years, there's always been this sort of misnomer out there that industry really didn't want to work with university researchers in that early stage research. And I know from the industry side that that's not true. They were interested in working. So you'd always hear stories about the fact that, oh, oh, don't bother even trying to find an industry partner until you're into some type of phase one or phase two study. That's not right. The industry would like to get involved earlier. So there is a role for them, John. So yes, I think that model does have to change. So one of the interesting things I find is that the McGowan Institute has worked to involve researchers with clinical regulatory people at an early stage so that the research is targeted to the outcomes that are desired. I think that's been a very effective tool in that regard. I think it's huge, John. I think one of the reasons why I've enjoyed having the opportunity to, to come here to the to the retreat and, and to get to know you better and the rest of the group is the fact that you are one of those groups that's starting to do that, and I think you're a group that shows there's benefits to it. But having said that, I do know that from talking to yourself and other people that there still are some barriers to doing that, that even though you change the way you do things internally with the McGowan, you still are somewhat handcuffed by some of the restrictions that the university as a whole puts on it. And I think that's what a lot of universities are finding right now, that even though they, as a small institute, will start doing things their own way, and as you say, changing the model where you do include regulatory quality and things like that early, which is more attractive to industry, but the model still needs some more tweaks to make it sort of an ideal system. There have been some regulatory incentives to move things out of the university. Has that been helpful? I think it definitely has. There's definitely been, as I sort of call it, two different sets of rules. I call it GLP light, good laboratory practices light, where academic institutions do seem to be getting a different set of rules than than industry does. And I think that could go two ways. As I say, one, I think it definitely is a benefit because it does allow for more of what you're talking about, where you are actually able to translate from bench to bedside. But at the same time, I think it might create a bit of a a discord between industry and academia in a sense that uh, there's two sets of rules, and an industry really looks at it where everything has to be done GLP, whereas right now we're seeing that academia has a little bit of flexibility they don't have. So I do think it's a step in the right direction. I think anything like that that might incentivize more of the work coming out of universities is a good thing. So in terms of proof of concept, is that something that should lean more towards the academic side as opposed to the commercial side? The nice thing about proof of concept when it's done in an academic institution is it can be done a lot of times much cheaper. Uh, I think sometimes the issue that happens with proof of concept is the amount of time it takes. So I think sometimes, as you said earlier, what you've done at the McGowan is where you've included things like regulatory and quality at an early stage. I think also, though, there has to be a little bit more of accountability from the stand of time frames because time is money for companies. So I think the proof of principle, I think it's definitely an opportunity for academics, but I think that the idea of milestones and time frames have to be met, and it has to be looked more as a business arrangement where there are actual deliverables that have to be on time. You know, the concept that time is money is certainly real in terms of a company that wants to get something to market. 
what's happened in industry, as I say, I've been in industry for almost 30 years now, is the real trend over the last 10 years has been coming up with systems that speed up that process. So because of the patent issues, because of the fact that on the drug side where, you know, whatever you want to agree on the numbers are, whether it takes 12 years, 14 years to get a product to market, meaning you only have six years left on the patent. So anytime you can speed that up, John, is definitely going to be a financial benefit to a company. So in terms of moving forward, what type of incentives do you think might be appropriate? I think that we have to have more incentives from the university level to start changing the way contracts and grants and tech transfer works. I think we need to look at things like maybe possibly having some type of a patent extension for companies that would work with an academic institution because of the understanding that the time frames are a little bit different. I think we need to incentivize the industry to work with the academia. But I also think we have to start looking at the legalese and, and the issues of legal liability, whereas the university tech transfer offices seem to be more concerned about patenting and things like royalties. And I think it has to be more of a business model where it's a joint relationship with industry, where both sides assume some risk. I think that Universities right now are very adverse to any type of risk whatsoever. They want to be in a situation where they've basically nullified all risk on their side, and that's just not business. That's just not the way any relationship works. Those things have to change, John. So I think the individual researchers in places like McGowan, who've done a fantastic job, I think that the changes have to be made more at an administrative level to allow the universities and industry to work together more from a business model standpoint. In terms of risk, There is the parallel of risk and reward. I presume that you are suggesting there is more reward to the university if, in fact, they are willing to assume more risk. Exactly. I had a great comment from the research that I did, and I'm going to paraphrase it wrong, John, but I'll try to, is that one person from industry said that, you know, university wants to behave like they're a business, but they're using public funds to do so. And so there is this sort of yin and yang sort of thing where they want to be seen as a business. They want to be treated as if they're a business. That's what tech transfer tries to do. But at the same time, they don't, from a cultural standpoint, actually do that. So, yeah, exactly. There's got to be that normal risk-reward type thing and that they have to assume some of the risk if they want some of the reward. Or the risk-reward scenario has to be based on who's going to assume more of the risk. I just think they have to be less risk-adverse, definitely. Let's talk a little bit more about what I'll call the point of entry in terms of commercial entities involving university activity. I have seen some instances where there are partnerships at the McGowan Institute that are formed where the partnership is what I call basic or maybe early applied research. Is that the type of scenario that you are suggesting as well? Yes. I think it could be in all phases, John, but I think there's definitely a benefit for the early stage. And this is where it gets really touchy from your earlier question about this idea of academia not supposed to be tied to industry and the whole idea that the science will be bastardized by being involved in industry. And I disagree with that. I think that back to your comment about early on introducing regulatory and quality is that by having an industry partner involved early, one, it can solve some of the funding options. And I think that's obviously very important with the funding model we have in the United States right now. But it also allows the industry to have some direction with respect to which way the research goes. And it isn't so much telling them what to do, but if they come to a fork in the road, just something as simple as doing an implantable medical device and you're looking at which material to look at from a biocompatibility standpoint. Well, you know, the industry has years and years of experience in that, and I think that they can speed up the process, and at the same time, both sides benefit from that scenario. So, of course, academic research is built 
on dissertations and individual research projects. Do you see that being complicated by the arrangement you are proposing? I think it definitely complicates it. I think where the, the big issue always has been is, is this idea of patent. And again, I think this is where I sometimes think that we look at the issue of patenting something too early on. I understand why it's done. In most cases in academia, it's done because of the fear of somebody from industry coming and stealing that technology. So I think that will always be a bit of a line. And I think that's where some of the incentives, John, have to be more of the legal incentives, where there is some flexibility in areas like that. And it may be flexibility with respect to how the patent laws work in those types of relationships. Dr. Jamison, you mentioned the changes in patent legislation. That certainly would be a congressional action. Is that something that is an easy bridge to cross? The biggest hurdle right now is, so many times when I ask this question, I have discussions with people like yourself, is, you know, what can we do under the constraints of the existing system? And that's very difficult. And people have tried to find that, find a better way. So I do think it's going to mean, you know, this idea of disruptive innovation. I truly believe that if the U.S. wants to continue to be a leader in biomedical research, is that it will take some type of disruptive innovation. And that may be, as you said, John, an act of Congress that changes some of the patent laws and other laws regarding how the two groups work together. Are there certain universities that are more proactive at following this outline that you've recommended? Yeah. Part of the research was asking for people to pick out some of the schools that they thought did a better job. You know, one of the schools that came out was MIT, and the idea was that they have a model. I think it's both MIT and Harvard, John, where they actually have their own little, for want of a better term, sort of venture capital groups. This idea of having an incubator has been around for a long time, but in this case, an actual independent incubator whereby sort of in general terms, they do all of the negotiations with the university beforehand so that when the time comes to actually negotiate some type of a relationship between industry and academia, it's done through this separate entity, not through the university. So it's more of a business-to-business relationship. So that's something that people pointed out. Schools like UCSF that have come up with a little bit of a different system whereby they have sort of a dating period of time where they allow the researchers to work together and without too much bureaucracy in the way. After a point in time, they decide whether or not there is a joint interest to move forward. Then they get the lawyers involved more at that point in time. So I think there's schools who are trying to do things, John. I think they're just, in a lot of cases, just burdened by the rules and laws that are in place right now. So I would think this discussion is going on at every major research university in the United States, and I'd say it's worldwide, to tell you the truth. But to date, I don't know of anybody that's done something that's sort of really out there, but there are definitely a few schools that have done a better job. You mentioned rules and laws. Of course, laws are laws of the land, and rules are rules of the university. Is this more heavily weighted toward the legislation or the rules of the institution? I think they're tied together, John. I think, and I'm by no means I ever want to pretend that I'm a patent lawyer, but I think that they're sort of tied together. So I think a lot of times we talk about the Bay Doyle Act and things like that, which governs how a university deals with respect to patents. So I think the two are tied. So I get the sense from when I talk to people at different universities is their hands are handcuffed because their rules are tied to legislation. So I think it has to be changes in both. Dr. Jameson, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insight and experience in this important topic. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute who sponsors this podcast series and encourage our listeners to submit questions that may be of interest. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again, thank you.